A Bite of Stars, A Slug of Time and Thou. The Universal Panacea, Frank said, lighting a cigar. Have one. I took it. Light up, man. It's great, man. We walked up Fifth Avenue towards 14th Street. Stop, Frank said. We came to a halt. Frank put his hand out in front of him and moved it back and forth a couple of times, inventing the rabbit. Getting to feel the creature's fur, he built it up logically from the feel. It was the only animal that could have produced that particular feel, and I was proud of him for thinking of it. Marvelous, I said, looking at it. The rabbit sat on its haunches, a bundle of white fur with pink eyes. Dilating its nostrils, it hopped away from us, disappearing into an open doorway. I'd never seen a more ingenious invention. Amazing, I said. Not really, Frank said. Watch this. Frank was a tall, thin-lipped man with a round forehead. Beads of perspiration appeared on his forehead. His face became taut, then relaxed. Feel anything? he asked. My brain tingled curiously. Something was being impinged on it. It was the consciousness of rabbits, their place in the scheme of things. I knew they'd been with us always. Frank grinned. Not only you, but practically every man, woman, and child in the world thinks that now. Only I know differently. (laughs) It was uncanny. We got in a cab and went up to the Three Sevens, a nightclub on 52nd Street. At the bar, a man in a gray overcoat was reading a manuscript to a blonde girl in her teens. I went over and listened. Now this is what he read. The universal panacea, Frank said, lighting a cigar. Have one. I took it. Light up, man. It's great, man. We walked up Fifth Avenue towards 14th Street. Stop, Frank said. We came to a halt. Frank put his hand out in front of him and moved it back and forth a couple of times, inventing the rabbit. Getting the feel of the creature's fur, he built it up logically from the feel. It was the only animal that could have produced that particular feel, and I was proud of him for thinking of it. Stop, I yelled. For Christ's sake, stop. The man in a gray overcoat turned around and faced me. Hey, what's eating you, bud? That manuscript you're reading, I said, is mine. He looked me up and down contemptuously. I said, you're the guy. Now, there was something disquietingly familiar about him. Say, who are you? For an answer, he doubled up his fist and socked the blonde sitting next to him. She thudded and teetered on the bar stool before falling off. She hit the floor with a resounding thump. Wood, he said, looking down at her. Solid wood. I tapped the girl's back with the toe of my shoe. There was no doubt about it. She was wooden to the core. How would you like to have to sit in a nightclub and redo a piece of wood? He asked, disgustedly. I wouldn't, I admitted. Yeah, all your characters are wooden, he said. His voice was strangely familiar. Say, who are you? He grinned and handed me his card. It said, Hilbert Hooper Aspasia, birdsmith, author. For a moment I stared at him in startled disbelief. Then I saw it was true. The man in a gray overcoat was myself. You're getting in over your head, he said. He was beginning to be a pain in the neck. You know, I think I'll just write him out of the story right now. <laughs> Uh, The man in the gray overcoat got up and walked out of the club. (laughs) There we go. I looked around to see what had happened to Frank. He had taken advantage of my preoccupation to step out of the characterization I'd given him and adopt one of his own choice, jazz musician. He was sitting in on the jam session with the Sevens, holding a trumpet he'd found somewhere. The Sevens paused, giving him the opportunity to solo. He arose and faced the audience. 
Frank now found himself in the embarrassing position of not knowing how to play the instrument. This, of course, was the consequence of having stepped out of character without my permission. The audience waited expectantly. Frank looked at me pleadingly. I grinned and shook my head. No. I will leave him in this humiliating situation for a while as punishment for getting out of control in the middle of the story. The bartender tapped me on the shoulder. He nodded toward the rear of the club. A tall redhead in a low-cut evening dress was standing in front of a door labeled manager. She motioned me to join her. I threaded my way between the crowded tables. Aren't you Aspasia, the writer? She asked. She was about 19 and as sleek as a mink. I am. Her eyes sparkled. I'm Sally LaRue, she said. The manager's daughter? Her body was an enticing succession of trim curves under her black dress. I have something you may be interested in. I didn't doubt it for a minute. It's an invention of Dad's. You might like to do an article about it. I might at that, I said, looking at her. She smiled shyly. I'd do anything to help Dad, she said simply. She took my hand and led me into the office. It was a large room with two windows facing 51st Street. In the center of it was a metallic contraption resembling a turbine. Attached to it was a mass of complicated wiring, several rheostats, and uh, two retorts containing quicksilver. What is it? I asked. A time machine, Sally said dramatically. I looked at the device. Does it work? Of course it works. Would you like to try it? I said I would. Past or future? Future. How about 5,000 years? That'll be fun. Sally adjusted a dial. Then she stepped over to the wall and pulled a switch. The turbine roared. Blue lightning flashed between the retorts and vaporized the quicksilver into a green gas. The room became luminous. An indicator hit the 5,000 mark. Sally released the switch. Here we are, she said. I dashed over to the windows to see what the world of the future was like. It's the same, Sally said, guessing my thought. I looked out on 51st Street. Nothing had changed. That's the beauty of the machine, Sally explained. It moves the whole world through time rather than just one part of it. The stars, I said. Surely their positions have changed. No, it moves the whole universe through time. Everything. I see. Isn't it wonderful? Thinking it over, I couldn't say it was. I didn't say it was. You'll do the article, won't you? She asked eagerly. Her body was rippling with excitement beneath her black dress. I noticed her father kept a couch in his office. Well, if you really want me to, I said. Yes. Would you like to go forward another 5,000 years? She asked. I glanced at the couch. Eh, not right now, I said. She was engrossed in a machine. I think I'll set it for A.D. 1 million. I looked at it, then at the couch. Then I remembered I'd left Frank in an awkward spot some 5,000 years and odd minutes ago. Hey, I'll be right back, I said. Wait for me here, will you? She had her hand on the switch. She smiled. Of course, she said. Darling. I left her at her dad's time machine, playfully thrusting the universe a million years into the future. Frank was in the bandstand with the sevens, where I'd left him, facing an expectant audience. When he saw me, he waved a trumpet at me before returning it to its case. He motioned the audience to be quiet. Frank tilted his head sideways, cupped his ear in his hand, and invented the piano. Getting the sound of the instrument's notes, he built it up logically from the sound. 
it was the only instrument that could have produced that particular sound. And I was glad to see him invent it, though I was getting a little tired of the trick. One of the seven sat down and started playing a boogie-woogie number. Frank came over and stood beside me. What do you think of it? He asked. It's great, man. He handed me a cigar. We lit up. Behind me, a familiar voice said, Hey, ask him to invent something original. Like what? I asked, without turning. Something socially conscious. A new sex, perhaps. Somebody's hand was in my pocket. How about that, Frank? I asked. Your subconscious is showing, Frank said, looking over my shoulder. The hand was withdrawn. I reached inside my pocket and brought out the card that had been left in it. It said, Guess who, and you can have me. Over. I turned the card over with fingers that trembled just a little. It said, Hilbert Hooper Aspasia, Birdsmith, Wasser. The voice behind me and the hand in my pocket were my own again. Turning, I caught a glimpse of the man in the gray overcoat, hurrying toward the door marked Manager. He paused in front of it and glanced at me. I nodded. With my approval, he went in and closed the door behind him, joining the red-headed mouse, Sally LaRue. I congratulated myself on projecting myself in a story of two characterizations. Owing to my foresight, I will now be able to enjoy the person of Sally LaRue without interference from the censors and at the same time continuing my narrative. I turned to Frank. Let's drop in on the Baron's party, I said. Good idea. We went outside, got in a cab, and went uptown to the Baron's apartment house. Inside, the party was going full blast. The Baron, as usual, was on the studio couch, passed down. The guests were in various states of inebriation. When I entered, the room became quiet for a moment. In the lull, a girl whispered, There's a spacia, the rider. He ought to trade himself in on a new model, somebody else said. He looks like a caricature of himself. Yeah, more like a cliché with feet. Have you read his latest story? No. To direct steal from Build Up Logically by H.H. Aspasia. You don't say. Blushing, I pretended an interest in the Baron's Mondrian collection. One of the girls said, I met his psychiatrist last week. He said he never knew which one of his split personalities was analyzing which of Aspasia's. How awful. Yes, but significant. Very. What else did he say? Basically maladjusted. Almost non-neurotic. <laughs> Tendencies toward normalcy, too, I'll bet. I wouldn't be surprised. How perfectly abominable. Yes, but significant. Very. I almost feel sorry for him. I wonder if it's safe being here with him. He's only partly with us, you know. Oh, poor guy. He probably lives in a world of reality. No doubt about it. Do you think psychiatry can help him? Possibly. There have been cures. Notice the way he's staring at the Baron's Mondrians. I think it's significant, don't you? Very. A feeling of boredom was beginning to come over me. I liked nobody at the party. I decided to bring it to an end. The guests, uh, laughing and talking, gathered up their belongings and left in groups of two and three. Only Frank and I and the passed-out Baron remained. Frank stood in the center of the room, his head cocked to one side, listening. What is it? I asked. Shh, Frank said. Listen. I listened. Hear it? I shook my head. What is it? The pulse beat of the universe. I can hear it. My God. He stood there listening to the pulse beat of the universe. Marvelous, I said. Yes, he said, but not for you. Frank tilted his head sideways, cupped his ear in his hand, and invented the universe. Getting the sound of its pulse beat, he built it up logically from the sound. It was the only universe that could have produced that particular pulse beat, and I was amazed at his blasphemy in creating it. Stop, I demanded. 
My demand went unheeded. The universe and its contents appeared. Frank's face tautened. Beads of perspiration broke out on his forehead. Then he relaxed. His grin was ominous. With a start of fear, I realized my predicament. In inventing the universe and its contents, Frank had also invented me. I was in the unheard-of position of having been created by a figment of my own imagination. Our roles are reversed, Frank said. I've not only created you, but all your works, including this narrative. Following this paragraph, I will assume my rightful role as author of this story, and you will assume yours as a character in it. Aspasia's face blanched. This is impossible, he said. Not impossible, I said. I've done it. I, Frank, have done it. I'm in control of the story. I've achieved reality at last. Aspasia's expression was bitter. Yes, at my expense. You're the first author in history to achieve a real status in fiction, I pointed out. Aspasia sneered. Happens every day. I shrugged. Survival of the fittest. Serves you right for giving me more creative power than you have. <laughs> what did you expect? Gratitude, Aspasia said nastily. And a little loyalty. Gratitude, my eye. You're the bird who made me stand in front of a nightclub audience for 5,000 years with a trumpet I couldn't play. Most humiliating experience of my life. You deserved it for getting out of character, Aspasia said a trifle petulantly. That, I said, gives me an idea. As a punishment for humiliating me in the three sevens, I will now give Aspasia a little dose of his own medicine. During his authorship of his story, Aspasia neglected completely to give himself a description. <laughs> he will now have no alternative but to accept the one I give him. I allowed him to guess my intention. No, Aspasia begged. No, don't do it. But I did. Aspasia's hair lip grimaced frightfully. He placed a gnarled hand to his pockmarked and cretinous face, squinting at me through bloodshot pig eyes. <laughs> Buttons popped from his trousers as his huge belly sagged. Beetling black eyebrows moved up and down his receding forehead. <laughs> <laughs> Bat ears stuck outward from his head. <laughs> you fiend, he gasped. You ungrateful fiend. There was murder in his eyes. I knew then it was going to be one or the other of us sooner or later. In self-defense, I had no alternative but to beat Aspasia to it. I was standing near the door. Turning the lights out, I stepped into the hall and closed the door behind me, leaving Aspasia in the dark with the sleeping baron. By a coincidence arranged by me as the author of the story, a neighbor of the baron's was in the hall walking towards the steps. I joined them. Halfway down the steps, we heard a shot. Fired in the Baron's apartment. My companion dashed back up. There was no need for me to follow him. I know what he would find. I had arranged that the Baron, awaking suddenly, would mistake Aspasia for a burglar in the darkness of the room and fire a bullet into his brain. Upstairs, Aspasia lay dead on the floor. I walked down the steps to the sidewalk. Across the street, I sat heavily on the front stoop of a, a brownstone house. Uh, Dog-tired, I rested my head against the step railing and went to sleep. While Frank is asleep, I, Aspasia, will take advantage of the opportunity to reassume my role as author of the story. Although I am quite dead in my characterization as Hilbert Hooper Aspasia, the companion and victim of Frank, the reader will be relieved to know I am alive and unharmed in my other characterization as Aspasia, the man in the gray overcoat.
For the second time that night, I congratulated myself on my foresight in projecting myself in the story in two characterizations. As the man in the gray overcoat, I was last seen entering the manager's office in the three sevens with the redhead, Sally LaRue. Sally lay on the couch in her dad's office, her red head cradled against the white of her arm, looking upward at me contentedly. The stars in her eyes were shining. Dear Aspasia, Sally said huskily. Is there a typewriter here? I asked. On the desk, Sally said. I sat at the desk. Hurry, darling, Sally said. I nodded, inserted a sheet of paper in the typewriter, and went on with the story. The lights were on in the Baron's apartment. Staring at the form on the floor, the Baron recognized it as his lifelong friend, Hilbert Hooper Aspasia. In a burst of anguish, the Baron flung the pistol that had killed his friend out the window. By a coincidence, arranged by me as the legitimate author of the story, the pistol exploded on landing, sending a bullet into the brain of Frank, who was still asleep across the street on the front stoop of a brownstone house. Frank slumped forward and rolled into the gutter, dead, a grim monument, and warning to all characters with rebellious spirits. I grinned and added the last two words to this story. The end. Hello, that was Build Up Logically, written in 1950 by Howard Schoenfeld. Schoenfeld was a conscientious objector in World War II, which he went to prison for, and he was a longtime resident of Greenwich Village in New York City, as you might be able to tell from this story. With me today to discuss Build Up Logically are my fellow host, Mark Sinker, and our special guest, Kat Stevens. First of all, Kat, what do you think of this story? I I wasn't sure about it to start off with. It all seemed very self-knowing and oh aren't I being so clever look at me ah I'm I'm gonna go all meta on everyone Uh that that wasn't really that's not really my sort of uh, the thing I enjoy reading um but it got a lot better uh with the whole I like the splitting the character into two and uh you know obviously eventually getting his comeuppance I like good endings like that that Uh come, come back to bite the uh the baddie Mark what did you think I I I guess I picked it because it suits um, a particular sort of strand of thinking I'm interested in, which is not so much the meta aspect of it as um, questions about the power of fiction and what fiction's for and how this works in in various genres. And, I mean, I I think it's it's interesting that it's in a collection, a Brian Aldiss collection called More Penguin Science Fiction because... You know, on the face of it, it's not, not. It's not really science fiction, is it? I mean, it has little elements which you could call science fiction, but it, it, I don't know what you would file it under, or anything you would file it under would be um, either kind of spoiling the joke. Uh, so, if you call it metafiction or postmodern, it, you, it sort of you know wrecks the idea in a way. And uh, his his um, his basic comfort zone seems to be more like hard boiled detective fiction i think mm-hmm. he he wrote more mysteries for the for ellery queen magazine i think than than other science fiction stories yeah, he, and he it, had he, he had one one novel i believe published uh, in his lifetime which is actually pretty successful i think it was but it was it was called let them eat bullets right and it, and it was a <laughs> and it was kind of a satire or a send-up of uh, yeah of uh, of detect of hardball detective I, fiction. I think it's pretty interesting that he was some kind of a greenwich village anarchist though because one of the things that is 
um, going on here is a little power struggle between the author and the characters. And this is a, um, a you know, this is a pretty interesting uh, element uh, of the ethics of fiction for all kinds of writers. There's there's something uh, quite famous that Iris Murdoch said, which was that um, that she felt that there was something utterly evil about the author's power to create a character who wasn't able to redeem themselves. That you know, in the world, because she was religious and whatever, in the world, God created evil characters, but because of free will, they were able somehow to potentially able to redeem themselves they didn't have to be evil but she said that the characters that an author creates have no option and this obviously the characters have no option in a sense but it's playing with the 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 um the tension between uh author's plan and where the story goes and um and the way the reader gets caught up in it, I think one of the things that's, that's actually quite nice about it, and he actually does pretty well, is you have these interruptions which really throw you out of the story. But then he's actually quite good at straight away getting quite simple descriptive sentences that just get you straight back in it, in again. And what it does, I think, is it it intensifies your it intensifies your awareness that that authors are always playing a, this sort of trick on you. But it also intensifies your awareness of of how powerful that trick actually is. That that you know you do want to you the narrative is is something which really grips you and t- carries you along. And is there something about wish fulfillment in this story? I mean, there, there are some there are some creepy there are some sort of was there. I don't know about you, about you guys, but the, the the whole bit with the the redhead in the bar I thought that was very creepy. Because he sort of realizes he can do whatever he wants. Yeah, yeah especially yeah. seeing as I was only uh, like uh, I, I'd lost my, the, the the breaks in the story distracted me enough that uh, our son was thinking, "Hang on, is that his daughter? Is he the manager? What? What's going on? <laughs> he can't he can't shag his own daughter." Uh, oh, oh, but hang on, that's not him. Oh, but that is him. Oh no! <laughs> but yeah, exactly. I mean, every time you're writing, there's a sense in which you're shagging your own children. <laughs> no, hey, hey, hey. <laughs> By which you mean <laughs> exercising uh, a kind of absolute power that uh, yeah, which is which is abusive clearly. <laughs> if the and this is this is a story about about um, uh, characters' rights and you know what they can do about them, which is kind of nothing. <laughs> um, so I, you know I, that's that's something that I I I like about it. Um, it's not the only you know it's by no means the first time that some sort of self-reflexivity has been put into uh, fiction. I, I'm fairly sure it goes back to the beginning of the novel and Cervantes appears in Don Quixote as a character and Tristram Shandy is, you know, is 200 years old when this, this is written. So it's it's an old idea, but but I think he does it in a, in a, in a way which is somehow feels very kind of... Um, prankishly new yorker i don't know it's 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 unsettling i mean i cat i know what you mean about reading it at first and just sort of feeling oh wait a minute what's going on here but i mean there's something about needing 
a little bit of structure rules to enjoy it in a way. If you feel like anything can happen and anything does happen, it's kind of hard to get a grip with it. Yeah, you need that narrative to keep you, your momentum up. And if uh, the story does chop around an awful lot and you get thrown out and all, not just the fourth wall gets broken, but there aren't any walls in the building at all, <laughs> your roof's going to fall down. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. And uh, I, I, re- I much prefer stories that do have a strong narrative but in a short story like this i find it much more palatable to ha- uh, be breaking those boundaries and you know playing around with uh, you know the the rules there's a there's a this story reminded me of a book uh, by robert coover called the universal baseball association henry j wall proprietor um, which is about a man who does nothing but eat hot pastrami sandwiches all day long and play a dice game of his own invention which uh, with fictional uh, baseball teams where they, he plays entire fictional seasons with uh, these with the dice. And he gets into the game so much that he writes fake newspaper articles uh, about the players, about their wives, about the, the organization involved. And meanwhile, his life is a complete shambles. Um, the outside of this game. And he's ready to call it quits when this new player, a fictional player, kind of inspires him. You know, he's, he's like this, this new kid on the block and there's something about him. And one day the rarest of all the dice throws happens. There's three consecutive snake eyes, I believe it is, which means the kid has been killed by a pitched ball. And the man wonders, can't I just pretend that it didn't happen and just take it back and, and just do that dice roll again? But he realizes that if he does this, he's going to destroy the entire foundation of his game, which is the only thing he has left in his life. So, like, the rules matter. I mean, I, I think, you know, this story sort of starts off shakily because it's hard to know if there are going to be any rules because you don't get the pleasure of breaking them then or the agony of breaking them. Mm. Well, what it, I mean, if you think about what it actually starts off with, the first thing he does, the first thing the character that the writer is talking to, that Frank does is pull a rabbit out of a hat. So it straight away says, this is about magic. What are the yeah. rules of magic? Yeah. But it doesn't, you know, we're reading it in a collection which is science fiction. Um, what's the difference between what happens in a book about magic and a book about science fiction? Well, you know, half the rest of the stories are full of things which are ostensibly scientific, rocket ship to another galaxy, telepathy. But, you know, none of these things actually exist. So why, so, why do you think Brian Aldiss, uh, who is the, was the editor of the compilation, I think that came out like 23 years after this story was written, why do you think he chose it for this? Well, because I think it does. I, the, the funny thing about it is it's, it's very playful in a way which I think is actually sort of more adult than adult. And by that I mean that fiction is, a, is something that as grown-ups we embrace quite as happily as children and we we put our suspension of disbelief hats on pretty easily for certain things but interestingly we also all have we have things we will accept and things we won't accept so that some people you know if it's if goblins suddenly turn up they throw the book into the corner of the room Mm -hmm. and other people if martians turn up they throw the book into the corner of the room although goblins and martians are effectively in lots of ways interchangeable in terms of what they bring to a story you know some readers will be happy with one and completely unhappy with the other and i think that's i think it's that kind of thing that that aldous is intrigued by that that lots of science fiction has this 
okay, now we're going to, you know, this portal to unreality in order to produce an effect. Kat, do you want to add something to that? Well, I think it all depends on how plausible the magic is or, you know, the goblins or the Martians. We don't know anything about Martians, but we know quite a lot about Earth and we've had a, a good look and we haven't really found any goblins, whereas we haven't explored Mars yet, so there may well be Martians out there. It's still within the realms of possibility that it might actually apply to our universe. Well, obviously, in fiction, then, you could be in anyone's universe. Uh, magic could just be a different form of science. And in the Earthsea books, where it's just woven into the laws of nature, that magic is just another force. The Earthsea books by Ursula K. Yeah. Le Guin, yeah. And, uh, uh, but with science fiction, then it, uh, it's got to be plausible in our universe. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of um, jiggery-pokery going along <laughs> with this, really, which which is... That you you gussy up magic with sort of um, blinking lights and electricity and some sort of I mean in the in the story it talks about um, a rheostat and a and a retort full of two retorts full of mercury. Yeah, it's like it's like the in stage order to props. say you know science science science. It's pointing these stage props at the that he's just wheeled out from the wings here. And there's a lot of that that goes on with with all science fiction. Yeah, with all science fiction and that effectively what it's you you're trying to absolutely get you from one world to another. And the the rules once you're in the in the world are if they're not directly realistic, they are internally coherent, but they're not the same as ours. But there isn't I don't think there's uh, a deep difference between going by time machine or going pushing through the fur coats at the back of the wardrobe but it what there is is a kind of atmospheric difference but there isn't a um a functional difference it's it's a portal to another place let me take you to a place i know you want to go it's a good life
I think there's a game also going on with the the age of the reader and their sense of what age they would like to feel. Because there's definitely with you know I can remember this. I, essentially, I mean, one of the things we talked about earlier in the series is I kind of grew out of science fiction. You know, when I was thirteen or fourteen, I kind of decided it wasn't the age I then was. This wasn't the sort of thing I wanted to um, to commit myself to for as I was, you know, beginning to approach in some way away being a grown up and fantasy as well. I mean, both of them I I had absolutely devoured between the age of sort of eight and 14. And then I I gave up on them. And I don't think that particular, my particular pattern isn't typical necessarily, but I think there is a, a sense that people pass through kind of age barriers and decide, actually, I'm too old for this kind of stuff. And then sometimes they may come back to it or they may grow into it and realise actually their resistance was was a sort of adolescent phase. When I was looking into just... You know, the way science fiction for children has actually developed there's a really nice uh i think example of something that seems to me that would be quite hard to write a story like this now but at the time it was written it seems very kind of typical is this story the ones the one that we just heard no no this no. story i'm about is is an early novel by robert Heinlein, which i think pretty much founded the genre of hardcore science fiction for kids in in novels which is called uh spaceship galileo i think and it's from 1947 and the story is three boys build a rocket ship in their back garden like you do and go to the moon where they discover that the nazis have built a base (laughs) from which to attack america and they foil this plot and I think that it would have been quite hard in 1947, for example, for uh, Robert Heinlein to write a story about three kids. I mean, he could have written it, but I don't think people would have wanted to read it, that that they'd got on broomsticks and gone to the moon and foiled the Nazis. The, the, the sort of cultural fashions and sensibilities fitted into this particular sort of thing. But if you look 50 years earlier, there were stories at the end of the 19th century where the enormous popularity of fairy tales and things like that was being exploited to write stories about science so that when I was looking into this, I found a couple of of really nice titles. Someone called Lucy Mayer, who I know nothing about, in 1887 wrote a book called Real Fairy Folks, colon, Explorations in the World of Atoms. (laughs) And (laughs) that's great, I think. And there's another, there's a, L. Frank Bourne story, and he's the guy who wrote the the Oz books, the master key, the master key, an electrical fairy tale, where electricity is is some sort of genie which grants wishes to the the boy who's to, to the centre of the story. So, I think at different periods, the relationship to um, what's what's possible, what's plausible, but also what you're sort of comfy with as a, as as a device and i think children think quite a lot about you know what's plausible what's possible what can be done but not in the sense of refusing it just in the sense of you know am i comfy with this is this an okay thing to be thinking about is this exciting i'd like to walk through the back of a wardrobe into a lovely snow laden country where there's talking animals and then you get to an age where you think 
I, you know, I, that's just silly. That's just for children. Ken, you said that in your notes that this story reminded you of, of a children's story from that you remember being given as a young girl called, um, let me see, i got it here, um, The Incredible Cottage Goes to the Moon. Indeed, The Incredible Cottage Goes to the Moon, which uh, is was by William Rushton, which I assume is the same Willie Rushton from... Uh, it was on the radio and stuff, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, it is quite a humorous book, but it's definitely for children. And uh, it concerns uh, a, a boy called uh, Waldo, who... Uh, he moves to a cottage with his parents and he discovers the cottage is magic. Ah. It has the power of teleportation. And uh, and it's just the cottage that moves, not the entire universe that, that moves at the same time. Well, no. <laughs> it's just the, the cottage can uh, uh, travel to anywhere you want. You have to write a, your destination on a bit of paper, throw it in the fire. And uh, one day they decide, let's go to Cape Canaveral and look at all the, the moon rockets going up. And uh, I think so, they can just decide to do this. Yeah. Well, um, his parents have gone to the pub. And uh, once they're there, they um, they sort of like, cool. Well, if we've gone this far, then why don't we go to the moon as well? And uh, they pick up a uh, an astronaut who's a, a man in a spacesuit who they believe is an astronaut. He's actually just a tour guide who says, oh, I have been to the moon loads of times. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll show you all about it. And, uh, and then he can't believe that he's actually gone there. He can't believe that this cottage is actually landed on the moon and he looks out and you know there's a flag and craters and things and uh, the whole concept of the uh, you know the cottage just it it doesn't have any bells or whistles or bangs and flashes it's just moves from mm -hmm. one place to the other mm -hmm. really simple throughout then waldo's really wants to find out how it does it you know he's got a scientific mind he's inter interested in space he's interested in technology and he's got like a i don't know transistor radio and all these sort of things and he asks uh, the, uh, the the black cat who lives in the house, who is, uh, used to belong to the witch whose magic powers the cottage. Uh, the witch is dead and uh, the cat... Is oh, so, the, so the cottage used to belong to the, a witch? Yes. Oh, I see. That's an important <laughs> part of the backstory here. Yeah, which you only find out halfway through the book. Oh, I yeah. mean, it's part of a series, so um, I think... There's a lot of assumption that you've already read yeah. uh, the story of the Incredible Cottage. Waldo meets the witch, and the Incredible Cottage goes to the pub, or you know the, the previous ones. And uh, the cat just dismisses all of Waldo's attempts to find out how the cottage moves, how it teleports itself. Oh, so sorry, the witch is is the cat now. No. Oh. No, the the witch isn't. Why is he is asking a thing. cat? Well, the cat can talk. Oh, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> 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 yeah. <laughs> and that isn't explained either. And the cat says, oh, no, if you try and find out, then it'll stop working. Really in a very smug tone. Yeah. And it's like, N well, no, you, you can't find out why. Well, it's like if, if you go into the wardrobe thinking you're going to go into Narnia, you just come up against the back of the wardrobe. Yeah, you can't try, uh, try too hard. Uh, the cat dismisses all of Waldo's scientific attempts at uh, explaining this. And the astronaut come tourist guide. He he says, "Oh, you must have a technology way in advance of our own." And it's like, "No, it's just magic. I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry." But this is true for so much of children's uh, fantasy stroke sci-fi. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'd say the Incredible Cottage Goes to the Moon is probably aimed at I don't know, sort of eight or nine-year-olds. Yeah. I think I was about eight or nine when yeah. I got it. And uh, so. You wouldn't know anything uh, about atoms at that stage or, you know, maybe 
even uh, particle physics and, you know, possible attempts that, uh, you know, being in two places at once and all things I'm not going to get into because I know nothing about, really. But yeah, there's... there's None of us know anything. No. (laughs) (laughs) There's a a possible, plausible explanation for why this cottage moves. Oh, yeah? Um, You think so? Well, you know, it could be, you know, it could be a technological triumph. Well, that's, that's what the little boy thinks. And yeah. he, he thinks there's a the key to it all. Yes. Well, he says that. Or does he think? Uh, I, he's uh, determined to find out because he's, he's sure there must be a reasonable explanation. He's very pragmatic. Your molecular structure invented something fine. A first-rate example of functional design That cosmic undulation is steady coming through Your molecular structure, baby, me and you Your cellular organization Is really something choice Electromagnetism about to make me lose my voice Got all my circuits open, my system's reading go. Your cellular organization, baby, stop the show. Molecular structure is really something swell. A high frequency modulated Jezebel. Thermodynamically, you're getting to me. Your molecular structure, baby. Ooh, we. It's it's interesting to me the parallel with that that was with Narnia where if you know that you're going to get into Narnia by going through the back of the wardrobe then you don't actually get to go. It's sort of like this house or the wardrobe is the portal. It allows you to go to this other place but you can't try to hold on to it too tightly. The moment that you do, the moment you try to have too much control, it yeah. all it all stops. But the thing is that does take the fun out of it. It really does. It's like in Choose Your Own Adventure books where you hold your fingers in uh, all the page junctions where you're coming to make a decision where it's unobvious what to do, where it's not just a clear-cut decision of, do you wish to open the airlock? Uh, No. (laughs) You have chosen to open the airlock. You are sucked into space. Your remains are never found, you know, and, and so on. And to avoid that, you will stick your fingers in each page junction and uh, uh, you'll end up kind of craft the up, best way through up to ten at a time. Yeah. <laughs> right, and um, I think that's exactly what uh, the the chap is doing in the story. Yeah, 
And uh, he's every time he he comes across some sort of peril, you know, his uh, uh, he can't go and sleep with the redheaded girl. He says, "Oh well, actually, I'll choose to clone myself and I'll go have my spread out my eggs into many baskets and say, well, I've got all these uh, contingency plans." And it, it just does take the fun out of it a little because you say, "Well, no, it's not like a how's he going to get out of this scrape." It's uh, Because he can just put his fingers in the pages and... Yeah, I've got all my bases covered. And so even if the other guy seems to have uh, sucked me out into an airlock here, I can just, like, retrace my steps, go back to page 47 and choose not to open the airlock door instead. And I think that's totally what he's done in that story, which was quite interesting. Have either of you ever read what was uh, once known as a hypertext novel? I don't believe I have. This is a big thing in the mid-90s, this idea that you could write books, basically choose your own adventure books, but on on a computer. So you couldn't – it took away the whole aspect of being able to stick your fingers in the pages and and be able to choose. You just kind of had to do it blindly. But there was this guy, Robert uh, Coover, who wrote the Universal Baseball Association. He was very into uh, this idea of hypertext and he actually worked on – uh, this at several universities in the United States with uh, computer scientists trying to you know build little programs and um, come up with essentially a new form, a new genre of of hypertext. It, it just didn't ever really go anywhere. Is this not like a text adventure? Yeah, yeah. They they went somewhere. Yeah, they did. That's true. And onto point and click adventures as well. And they did have the fingers stuck in the page because if you could save the game at any point, but they did die out. Nobody – the text adventure company, Infocom, doesn't exist anymore. The people that made all those old text adventures like Zork, the Choose Your Own Adventures that's, books, they haven't, they haven't been – they haven't published those that's in – That's because um, we've uh, ten years we've in, invented computers that do pictures now. Yes. I, I think that is a pretty important development is that, that actually most computer games are these um, sort of sense around environments that you are traveling through. But the way you're making decisions feels more like the way you make decisions just as you're ordinarily moving through your life. The sensual pleasure of reading is a particular kind of thing that you're very used to and that that was actually being broken and interrupted in a rather unpleasurable way for most of these adventures. The sticking your fingers in the pages or text thing i mean the problem with the text thing i think is actually the problem of reading text on a computer screen as much Mm, mm. it's it's not that great a thing to do Mm, mm. whereas obviously being completely uh absorbed in tomb raider or whatever it is or phoenix Wright ace attorney where you play a lawyer and uh, you do have to make decisions whether to badger your witness or present a piece of evidence and if you make the wrong decision then your defendant loses and um, that's the end of the game but uh, if you do make the right decision there's so much narrative going there you're very much guided along this path and um, uh, your sort of your character gets tied up to you know the fate of your clients and it, it, it gets very touching sometimes <laughs> uh, one of the things i think to go back to what you were talking about about what's the real thing going on in the cottage story or the narnia story or actually lots of the stories we're thinking about is the purpose of it is to meet animals that can talk (laughs) (laughs) that's really what it boils down to when you know dr doolittle goes to the moon but it's not 
really about the science of going to the moon. I mean, he goes on a giant moth. Actually, <laughs> all of those stories are about wouldn't it be great if animals can talk? And that is clearly something that children especially are very fascinated by because animals can't talk, but they're obviously, you know, they're obviously thinking. Mm. So you want to know what they're thinking and that that would be a great... Yeah, having that set up there where... Um with a Doctor Doolittle, you know, you know he's an established character. You know that that's his job. He talks to animals. <laughs> you know, uh, whether he's in the moon or in the in the jungle or under the sea or in ancient Egypt, he's going to be talking to animals and doing that wherever he is. And um, I think that's a, another failing, really, for of children's science fiction. They always seem to be taking an established character and lumping them into a a, a science fiction setting like um i don't know, indiana jones meets the robots the science fiction writer who was probably most famous for the longest time for writing almost entirely for children andre norton mm-hmm. progressed really from writing pretty much straightforward getting in rocket shop ships going across the galaxy stories about a, a big a confederacy of planets um, which had somewhat come to pieces and people, um, you know, working through their lives and adventures within this setting to writing a whole series of stories about a set of planets based around one called Witch World, which somewhat gives away what the general topic would be there. And the thread through all of these is telepathy with animals as well. And... <laughs> Uh, I can't even remember the the name of them, but I think the planet is called Cat, spelt C-A-A-T, where it involves people who are cats who are tele- <laughs> telepathic. And by the time these ones were being written, I was a bit too old to be convinced that I was going to devote the whole of the rest of my life to this. Um, but the the early ones, I think, uh, you know, the the science element of it is... It's to do with the the gleaming surface of rocket ships and the way people dress and they you know carry blasters. And, You're talking about these Andre Norton books, yeah. And and so this was pretty important to um, to the ambience of them. And and you know there's rockets landing on planets and then there's encounters with strange animals. And so there's this sense of the um, the sensibility of space. But it sounds like to me like you're saying that the science of it is really just the setting. Yes. More, more than it's... I, I think it is, and I think it's a setting for a, a certain kind of social adventure. And uh, an Earthsea was, is the same thing, I think, that, that it allows you a certain kind of social adventure and the relationships are a certain kind of relationship. And I think that is, is really what, what distinguishes them is the direction you want to take the, um, the society in. Let's talk for a second about the setting of this story. Uh, it's kind of jazz age, New York City, Bohemia, wild parties. Why, why didn't he decide to, if he's going to get all meta and go anywhere he wants, do anything he wants, create the universe from scratch? Why doesn't he do something like, I don't know, hang out with dinosaurs or something? Well, I think I think this is part of the joke he's making in a way, is that he... He introduces two elements. One of them is that the character who made the bunny then invents a piano and then invents the universe. So he's saying, you know, you can do everything, anything you want. Yeah. And then 
the device that's introduced is a time machine. But what he does with the time machine is that it's a useless time machine. It's just it's one of the most fantastic <laughs> jo- time machine joke I think I've ever heard. I mean, it's, I think it's just brilliant. It's, it's great. And there's no way that you can really say that it hasn't worked, really. There's no way to disprove yeah, yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. That's what it, so it is. It is a perfect time machine. But I, I think that, that the other half of the joke is that the characters who are in it, the, the writer and Frank, are, are, are kind of lame people. And the, the and the um, Aspasia, all he's interested in is the manager's daughter, and and, and smoking a cigar. Too. It doesn't. It, nothing else that 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 actually crops up particularly distracts from his interest in. Um, well, apart from humiliating Frank, uh, but Frankie yeah. only humiliates, I think, because Frank starts to act up, and Frank wants to go to a jazz club and be a great jazz man, and he wants Aspasia to live out this dream. Think, yeah, and I suppose he just thinks that's that's he's you know, so petty. I, yeah, he's incredibly petty, and I think that that's you know that's that's the joke of the story. It's like. I am the god of everything. I as the author, and look at the amazing things I can do. <laughs> they are, in fact, incredibly feeble and boring. Go, go to a go to a lame party. <laughs> Leave. But the other side of it, I think, is that, as I was saying before, I, I think that the the strength of the story is that he's actually very good at very swiftly conjuring. They're kind of stock characters and stock situations, but he's actually good at getting you straight into the feel of them so that there's a break in the story because it goes through a loop or because there's a sort of, um, you know, magic stroke, science fiction, metafiction gag. But the very next sentence takes you straight back into the feel of the type of story that that he's using. And and I think the the simplicity of that, it, you know, these are the kind of stories he obviously liked. The the novel that you mentioned, "Let Them Eat Bullets," is one of the great names yeah, of all time. Is and it's clearly all part of the same sort of create the feel quickly, and that's what I can do. And that's um, I think, you know, it it's it's not just that it's handy for him because it's what he always does, but he really actually enjoys the simple pleasure of that kind of creative power that that level of pulp writing is the thing that he really does like and, and so, i think that there were a lot of people at that time who also really, yeah, yes, really I mean, it was a popular genre to anyway. us now i mean maybe yeah, yeah I, I the jazz club was, didn't really ring well with but you know, you know i think i mean to be fair probably possibly in the 40s for a lot of readers a jazz club was, if not quite as exotic as going to meet dinosaurs. It was still not something that you could just walk, yeah, you know, walk out of your house and down the street and find. It's something for the big city, the big scary city, places that you don't know about, and that. I mean, it's not calling it Runyon-esque is is pushing it a bit. It's not as exotic or as funny as Damon Runyon's, you know, portrait of gangster life, but. That's what the Baron makes you think of, and and that's that's what has drawn so many people to New York. Yeah, actually, exactly. through the decades. Uh, anyways, to, to let's I, I can do anything with my life. I want to go to New York. Yeah. yeah. One of the subtextual elements of a lot of folk tales about magic is really about the ethics of magic, and um, and what it's what the story will be exploring is assume 
you have a power which allows you to do everything, what's the drawback? What's the payoff? If you're able to grant three wishes, what's going to be the drawback? And uh, the reason I think this is, is quite a, an adult story is because I think he's he's jumping up above that sort of level and saying, what whatever you can do that works proves that you haven't uh, broken the rules so seriously that it comes to pieces and and that's really the level of what you know where in the world that we all exi- exist in where magic actually works is the ability of some people to make marks on a black page hand them to someone else and make stuff happen in their head that they didn't expect and that that's a really potent um thing in all of our lives which we love but we're also somewhat unsettled by writers are also unsettled by their ability to do this and that's why you know every every few years another writer comes around and and plays this kind of game in a different way so to be pushing you in and out of the story Thank you, Cat Stevens and Mark Sinker. This has been the last episode of this series. Thanks again to all of our guests, Tom and Al Ewing, Sarah Clark, Ken Hollings, Martin Skidmore, Alan Truartha, and Dave Queen. We hope you've enjoyed the program. Thanks very much for listening. She's ten.